Welcome back to the Winter War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 5 and it's mid-December 1939. Last we heard, our Russian Stavka had taken control of the war directly after a number of mishaps. The Finns had managed to stymie the mighty Red Army, which launched its invasion without warning on November 30th, 1939. 120,000 Russian soldiers backed up with 1,500 artillery pieces, 1,400 tanks, and about 1,000 planes had initially launched part of the invasion along the Karelian Isthmus. This was the Soviet 7th Army. The Finnish forces facing them were tiny by comparison, just 10% of their size, 26,000 infantry, 71 artillery, no tanks. Helsinki couldn't call on an air force. They had virtually no planes. The Russian 7th Army, led by Vladimir Grendel, was tasked with seizing the Karelian Isthmus, targeting both the east up against Lake Ladoga, and the west, via Vipuri, along the Baltic coast. As you heard previously, the eastern sector had been a nightmare, but the Russians held up at Taipali. The Finnish artillery in particular had scored many hits on the Red Army moving across open land as they tried to get across the Taipali River. After the setbacks, the Stavka increased the size of the infantry to 250,000, added another 300 artillery pieces, as well as hundreds more tanks and more aircraft. The Russians shifted their attention on the isthmus back to the western edge, towards Vipuri. The Finnish Army's Second Corps, comprised of the 1st, 4th, 5th and 11th Divisions, were fighting here, fighting stoically against the invasion, but short of reinforcements. At Summa, Colonel Selim Isaacson's 5th Division awaited the Russians. To their left was the 1st Division, led by Leitekanen, and on his left, Colonel Koskimis of the 11th Division. Orders were sent by Carl Gustav Mannerheim on the 5th of December to hold the ground at all costs. The Finnish High Command also issued a statement on how to defeat the dreaded Russian tanks. If the enemy tanks at times manage to break through our lines, our troops must hold their ground and calmly destroy the infantry following in the wake of their armour, was part of that order. One of the main Soviet objectives was to hit the 12-kilometre area between Sumer village and a large lake called Morlanjavi. The Russians were going to strike this area repeatedly, and were repeatedly repulsed until the end of December. But it's time to cast our gaze further north to the battle for Suomosalmi, which was going to become a symbol of Finnish resistance in the coming weeks. This town of roughly 4,000 people lies in the central region of Finland, in the east of what was called the waste of the country, the narrowest part close to the Russian border. Suomosalmi was a provincial centre, the town made up mostly of loggers and hunters, although seasonal fishing was also part of the economy. The Russian plan was to take the town, then drive directly west, thus splitting the country in two as they focused on the Baltic harbour town of Ulu. Sumusalmi region is characterised by long, twisty lakes that radiate outwards from the road junction there. At 8am on the 30th of November, the Soviet 163rd Rifle Division, led by Brigade Commander Andrew Zelensov, launched an attack on the village of Lonka, just over the border. Zelensov's strategy was to attempt to take Sumasalmi from two directions, a two-pronged attack, and at first his forces managed to advance 15 kilometers. It's safe to say that the Finns were startled that their enemy had bothered to attack this area at all, even more so that they had arrived in force. The 163rd Division had been moved from its base on the Mamansk Railway along a specially built forest road with a view to spear through the wilderness to capture Ulu and then take control of the Finns' main railway line. They easily overcame the 50 or so border guards and pushed onwards without stopping. 
The 662nd Rifle Regiment and the 81st Mountain Regiment, who had been seconded from the 54th Mountain Division, had marched halfway to the initial objective, which was Palovara. They had a large artillery section supporting their assault. Another 3,000 men were already south of this position. They were striking from Rate up the road towards Sumasalmi. They were part of the 759th Rifle Regiment, supported by half a dozen 76mm cannon. Pacing these troops with a few hundred men of the 15th Independent Battalion, who were arraigned around a defensive line at the Purak Senyoki River. The Soviet's 1st Rifle Battalion made four unsuccessful attempts at overcoming the Finns here until Red Army reinforcements managed to come close to encircling the defenders. Mannerheim gave orders for the battalion to withdraw, but the Soviets had no idea that their enemy was about to leave the scene. The Russians wasted another few days waiting for their artillery to show up before continuing their assault. Finally, after the guns arrived and bombarded the empty Finnish positions, the Soviets seized these trenches. This was rather a hollow victory. To the north, Zelensov split up the 163rd Rifle Division, with the 662nd Rifle Regiment sent to its right flank towards Peranku village, and the 81st Mountain Rifle Regiment heading straight towards Sumasalmi itself. All the Finnish forces operating above the Palovara Road junction were now designated as Task Force Susi, named after the commander Lieutenant Colonel Pavo Susitavo. At first glance, this all appeared to be going according to plan. The Finns were on the run, thought the Soviet commanders. But Zelensov had made a cardinal error in splitting his northern force. The Finns managed to hold out for a week at Sumasalmi, and before leaving they torched every building so the Russians would have no protection from the elements. Then the Finns retreated to the south of the large lake, Kiantajavi. That meant Zelensov had stripped the 662nd Regiment of one of its battalions, and Task Force Suzy found itself facing only 2,000 troops, and they had expected more like 5,000. The next day, the 8th of December, Zelensov's southern pincer arrived at the blackened village along the Rate Road. This was part of the main southern track, which meandered into the more populous interior of the country. However, winter storms were now playing havoc. As the Germans were to find out later, the northern winter is extreme, and the Russian troops were experiencing hundreds of cases of frostbite. 20% of Zelensov's men were now out of action. Their blackened hands and feet meant they were in danger of gangrene. Within a few days, the Finns realized the Russians' predicament and counterattacked, cutting the 163rd Rifle Division lines of communication to the south. Then they cut off the main road to the south on the 15th of December. From being the hero of an assault, Zelensov found himself on the defensive, a situation that remained the case for the rest of this 105-day war. So what happened? How did this go so disastrously wrong for the Russians in this sector? On the 8th of December, the Finnish 27th Infantry Regiment, led by Colonel Helmar Silasvuo, were sent as reinforcements to the area. Gustav Mannerheim had figured out that the Russians planned to cut his country in two and decided that Suma Salmi was of more critical importance than he had originally thought. Task Force Silasvuo, as it became known, was upped in strength to a brigade in size, and Mannerheim issued new orders. Its commanding officer was Major General Tumpo, who passed on these orders to Silas Vuo to take Sumasalmi. At first, the junior officers who heard the order were flabbergasted. They were facing a far more powerful army here, with tanks and lots of ammunition. The Finns, in contrast, were lightly armed and on skis. But in the frozen wilderness, fast-moving men on skis who know their own land and are motivated become a significant threat to a much larger force. 
and the Finnish force included a large number of loggers and hunters who knew the forest backwards and could move fast and silently in the snow. This was a highly mobile force, and in war, mobility is almost as important as morale. Silas Vuor's regiment was codenamed JR-27 and was the nucleus of an ad hoc brigade strength force which was on a mission to destroy the 163rd Russian Division. Mannerheim wanted the division terminated, not just stopped. So he ordered the initial assault on Sumasalmi to begin on the 11th of December, but Silas Vuor had a few questions about the new battalions he'd inherited. One of the commanders of these battalions had already committed suicide. They'd been on the retreat since the beginning of the war. They'd been weakened. Their resolve was in dispute. So in an odd twist in this story, Silas Vuor fibbed and had information circulated that there were far more reinforcements on the way. It's ironic that later Mannerheim did actually send more reinforcements, but this had nothing to do with Silas Vuor's giant fib. The effect of the false story was galvanizing. The two battalions turned to fight the Russians with new vigour. No longer did they feel abandoned. The region here is characterised by two major lakes called Kivashjavi and Kumojavi, and the Russians were in an area between the two. That meant there was very little room for movement, but they were also sitting ducks for mobile troops on skis. JR-27's HQ was in the home of a forester in Hirin-Salmi village, and the Russians had no idea that the Finns had extended their railway line all the way to this little corner, only 25 miles south of Sumasalmi. That meant they could move reinforcements here more rapidly than Moscow had anticipated. Silas Vro wanted to launch his road-cutting operation first, sealing off Rati so that the Red Army reinforcements would not reach Sumasalmi. On the night of the 10th of December, he moved the bulk of his JR-27 force southeast of Sumasalmi and quickly built what was known as an ice road, smaller cut trails that allowed the Finns to sneak up alongside Russian units, hidden away in the thick forest. This meant he could move as few pieces of artillery from point to point, firing a few rounds at each, then vanishing back into the wilderness. Three Finnish battalions from the 27th Infantry Regiment were under command of Lieutenant Colonel Johan Makinyemi, who took aim at the all-important road to Rati. All Soviet reinforcements were being sent northwest along this road, so it was crucial to cut off the logistics supply route. The Finns captured an unguarded section of the road on the evening of 11th December, and two companies then dug in along a defensive position facing east, while the rest of the battalions headed back west of Sumasalmi. Zerensov appeared unconcerned about the threat he now faced, but was soon to realise his predicament. Within a day, the Finns had destroyed a small convoy of six Russian trucks, which had been sweeping the road to assess the dangers. The Soviets tried to counterattack, but failed. The Finnish troops defending the road had skied to their positions, then fought the Russians twice and were now exhausted. They couldn't sleep, however. All their camping gear was far behind, and the next day these same sleep-deprived men launched their own counter-attack on the Russian positions alongside the road at a place called Lake Pitlajalampi. There was a hill nearby that the Red Army held, and an entire day of hand-to-hand fighting took place here. The infantrymen of the Red Army had refused to retreat or surrender, so this turned into a brutal combat for the hill. Eventually the Finns took the strategic position. Three battalions managed to overcome the Russians and capture this high ground. They now controlled the approaches over a nearby frozen lake and their tents and other material could be sent to the men. Finally they had protection from the elements. One of these bits of kit was the remarkably well-designed SA-10 tent. It has space for 10 troops and a specially designed roof for a chimney 
and it's a low-profile living space, hard to spot in the thick forest. The Russians were not so lucky. Finnish intelligence intercepted a message of complaint filed by 662nd Regiment Commander Sharov on the 11th of December, which was bitter, to put it mildly. Sharov said his men lacked boots, snowsuits and food. Then the Finns intercepted another message that one of the hated Red Army commissars, the Politruks as they were known, had been fragged by his own men, shot dead. So this is where the concept of morty action or chopping wood gained traction. The phenomenon has been described as slicing off the road-bound enemy columns to allow the defeat individually. Its name originated in the technique of binding branches in place, making them easier to cut up. The term moti is part of the Finnish military slang, although it has some older meanings in Finnish. The most widely known is one cubic meter of firewood. The individual motis received many names during these battles, mainly in an attempt at deceiving Soviet intelligence, but in time they all were designated an official name, usually according to the nearest town or village. Tactically, it went like this. A combat team was sent to an assembly area just out of reach of the Red Army reconnaissance patrols, while Finnish scouts recceed the best concealed routes to the road from these assembly areas. Each target was established with mobility in mind, how long it would take to get there, how much time men had to recover from the marathon skiing assaults, how close to the jumping-off point for the final assault. When the assault units arrived close to their target, they would ditch their heavy winter gear and equipment, leaving these behind in favour of lightweight snow sheets and armed to the teeth. Their Suomi submachine guns, their Lugers, grenades and satchel charges. Just before they launched at the Russians, the scouts would return with information about the last-minute changes on the enemy's side, and then the Maxim machine guns and mortar teams ranged their weapons. On a signal, the mortars and machine guns would open up for a short, sharp barrage, then shift the barrage 100 yards left or right of the initial target, which served to seal off the target area, following which the Finnish infantry moved in at speed. Just before they launched, these assault teams would creep up to a few metres from the Russians in total silence, then leap out of the snow almost on top of their enemy, raking everything with extremely heavy automatic fire. Others tossed satchel charges and grenades into the vehicles, the bunkers, the open tank hatches, field kitchens, mortar pits. Sharpshooters deployed with these assault teams had special orders to aim for the officers and NCOs first. Within moments there would be hand-to-hand fighting as the Russians fought for their lives. Once the target had been overcome, engineers would emerge to widen the breach, and road cuts would often exceed half a kilometre with strong barricades on both edges. The Finns were adept at turning the Russians' heavy weapons around, facing up and down the roads, using the tanks and mortars and machine guns they captured, as long as the turrets still worked, of course. From here on, Selashvur's men used this tactic sometimes twice or three times a day, hitting different parts of the road, and the Russians found it almost impossible to defend against this sort of assault. The hope was to isolate the Russian infantry inside their own motis, cut off from each other and supplies. Who or what was trapped inside these was pretty random, so all motis were unique. Some had only infantry, while some had mostly support elements. In the battles further north, unlike in the Ladoga Karelia, Long-lasting motis weren't created. Sur Masalmi and Narati Road saw Soviet forces quickly surrounded and destroyed, while in the south, these motis tended to drag on. As Finnish winter war expert Sami Koronen points out, the Finns had hoped that a successful attack would create havoc and panic 
among the isolated Soviet troops. This hope proved to be wrong, as the Finns lacked sufficient number of troops to destroy these pockets right away, and the Red Army soldiers fought back furiously. The trapped Soviet troops sometimes dug in, creating powerful pockets with all-around defence. It became quickly evident that the individual Soviet soldier was remarkable in his ability to dig defences. It would only be in the first week of January that the term MOTI came into use officially as these tactics formalised. By now, the Finns had deployed mobile telecoms. Remember, before the war began, they had suffered from poor intelligence and communication systems, but Mannerheim had been hard at work improving that situation. His new system was working a charm. The mobile vans were prowling the back roads, eavesdropping on Russian radio traffic, then feeding the information to data centres. Crypto analysts were ready to receive these and often decoded the signals in less than four hours. So within a few days, C. Lashvio's forces had shut down the road along a mile-wide isthmus between the Kaivaschavi and Kumoschavi lakes. Finnish intelligence picked up messages that a new Soviet division was forming up just across the border with the aim of coming to Zelensov's assistance. But the roadblock meant the Red Army's movement was basically limited to either hitting these roadblocks directly with its bristling Russian tank turrets and other arms awaiting, or to try and outflank the Finns using the frozen lakes. This meant they would be exposed on the open ice and be juicy targets for JR-27's machine guns and mortars. As William Trotter notes in his brilliant book A Frozen Hell, the Russo-Finnish Winter War, the Russians could use a third option, which was to travel quite a distance further into the forest for a deep flanking maneuver. Silas Buol was betting that they wouldn't take this circuitous route because then they'd have to ditch their artillery and tanks and go snowbashing through thick drifts and impenetrable forests. He was right. The reinforcements were going to come down the road, and 350 Finnish soldiers managed to hold off thousands of Russians. There are extraordinary stories from this period of the war. Perhaps the most extraordinary took place at Sumasalmi itself, or at least on the outskirts. In one skirmish, two Russian tanks attacked a Finnish squad caught without any anti-tank defences in lightly wooded terrain on the fringe of Sumasalmi. Lieutenant Wovenen taped five stick grenades together and crawled towards the tanks, while First Lieutenant Verki gave covering fire with a luger. He emptied the 9mm pistol at one of the tank's observation slits from a distance of 40 metres. The T-28s fired back with their machine guns and Verki dropped. He must be hit, thought the other men, but no, he was merely reloading his pistol. Then he stood back up and fired again. The tanks fired at Verki. He dropped once again, and once more he stood up and fired at the tanks. The T-28s then turned around and clanked back into the village. Huovenin had almost made it to the tanks, but they took off so fast he didn't get a chance to lob his taped grenades at the enemy. As Trotter points out, this must be one of the few instances in modern warfare where tanks have been repulsed by pistol fire. The next day, the 12th of December, Silas Vuo's JR-27 attacked Sumasalmi along the Rati Road and from the west over an area known as the Hulkoniemi Peninsula, aiming at cutting off logistics and support. On the 13th, the Red Army counterattacked from inside Sumasalmi using heavy weapons, including five tanks, but the Finns pushed them back, then counterattacked themselves, but the Russians were too well dug in. Silas Vuo's men were unable to overrun this important target. However, the Finns retained the initiative, moving a battalion to the Kanusvara area northeast of the main road, and this road to the north, where the Russians' only source of escape and supply. More information was picked up by the Finns, 
On the 13th, Sharov 662nd sent another message that he now had 48 cases of frostbite, along with 160 battle casualties, 10% of his force, and he hadn't fought more than a skirmish yet. More Finn artillery support arrived on December 16th, a four-gun battery of 76.2mm weapons that dated from before the Russo-Japanese War. Two days later, on the 18th, a modern battery of guns arrived, and on the 22nd of December, Silashpur received both his anti-tank weapons. It was also on the 22nd that Mannerheim sent a Christmas present, an entire infantry regiment designated JR-24, as well as a new battalion of ski guerrilla troops known as P-1 and an additional battalion of soldiers. Silas Vuo now led a division of 11,500 men. Further to the north, Task Force Suzy, led by Lieutenant Colonel Pavo Susitava, as you heard earlier, still held the town of Paranka. He'd been sent an unusual battalion called PPP-6, a bicycle battalion. PPP-6 were ordered to assault Russian cavalry, who'd set themselves up in a dirt track between two lakes called Aliyavi and Kobayavi, northeast of Sumasami. The cyclists cleared the cavalry in a series of skirmishes between the 17th and 22nd December. The Finns were tightening the noose around the Russians at the strategic village. To the east, Captain Simo Makinen was staving off the Russians' attempt at attacking along the road to Rati. His force was part of a rear guard. Never a nice place to be in a war. Even less so for Makinen, because he was totally unaware that an entire new Russian division had been mobilized on Stavka orders and were on their way. Silashvur once again thought the Russians would use a road in any direct attack. Makinen was holding the road between Kuvasjavi and Kuomojavi lakes. On the 17th of December, Makinen received the grand total of one piece of artillery, a howitzer that could lob shells over the trees. Quite useful then, even though it was the lone gun. Just in time, because the Russians' 44th Rifle Division was going to be heading straight for him and his 350 men. He thought quite a bit about where to place this single weapon, and ended up deploying it in a forward position on the road as an anti-tank gun. And on the 18th of December, the Russians began their assault on Makinin's position, but tanks and his solo howitzer took out three of these. The assault was halted. The next day, on the 19th, Task Force Susie was bolstered by another machine gun company, and the tiny force managed to keep 14,500 Russian soldiers at bay. This was all too much for Russian commander of the 163rd Rifle Division, Zelensov. He asked for permission to regroup, but the Stavka had already dispatched the 44th Rifle Division and they were determined to keep up the pressure on the Finns. As you'll hear next episode, the Russian 9th Army is about to get a new commander, Vasily Choykov, who take command of the 9th, and the 163rd and 44th Rifle Divisions were going to receive new orders from him. This included a new tactic, taking the long route around the Finnish defensive positions, 200 kilometers off the tracks and into the forests. To reach their comrades in Sumasalmi, these reinforcements from the north would have to fight through the Finns around the Hulkaniemi Peninsula. It wasn't going to help the Russians that the winter of 1939-40 was colder than usual, and the snowfall heavier. Next episode, we'll deal with the disaster that awaited the 44th Rifle Division. Please head off to the website abwarpodcast.com. You'll find a page dedicated to the series and links to the audio. And also head off to desmondlatham.blog for regular updates. Until next, goodbye.